This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to episode 333 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking, from indie film to studio films and everything in between. How to get them made, how to make them and how to try not to F it up, in our very, very humble opinion. Today on the show, we have the director, Richard Eyre. Now... If you don't know Richard, he is a bit of a hero in the film world. He has been around a long time in the theatre world, making some extraordinary pieces of work. Um, His directing credits include um, his debut, Plowman's Lunch, which we touch on a little bit, uh, which starred Jonathan Price, Frank Finlay and... Tim Curry. Then he went on to write the stage adaption of Richard III, uh, which starred Ian McKellen. Um, Iris, which he directed and wrote, that starred Judy Dench, and I believe she won an Oscar for it. A Stage Beauty, which stars Tom Wilkinson, Hugh Bonneville, Billy Crudup, and Claire Danes, which was produced by Robert De Niro. He then went on to direct Notes on a Scandal, which was written by Patrick Marber. That starred Kate Blanchett and also went on to win Oscars. Uh, then he was exec producer on Atonement and The Other Man, which he also directed. He also directed The Children Act, starring Emma Thompson, Stanley Tucci and Fionn Whitehead. And more recently, he has directed Alleluia, which stars an array of British talent, which includes Louis Circus. Uh, Lorraine Ashbourne, Jessica Baglow, David Bradley, Bally Gill, Eileen Davis, Judy Dench, Derek Jacobi, Julia McKenzie, Russell Tovey, and in one of the lead roles, Jennifer Saunders. This film is the story of a geriatric ward in a small Yorkshire hospital threatened with closure. It is based on Alan Bennett's play of the same name, and it's been adapted by Heidi Thomas. The film's producers are Damien Jones and Kevin Loder. And myself and Matthew and Tori Butlerhart sat down for an amazing natter with him all about how he makes his films, uh, how he moved from theatre to TV and film and what the difference is, how he learned on the job, how he learned to make TV and films by just doing that, making TV and films. He talks about rehearsal and the difference of each actor and why sometimes you need to cut around certain actors why there are scenes you don't need in the edit how editing is so important and why he plans his film in order to create spontaneity he gives you some amazing advice on persistence and why writing is so important that is all coming up for you on this week's Filmmakers Podcast. To give you an insight on Toria and Matthew Butler Hart, because they're both amazing, um, 
Uh, Tori is an actress. Uh, Matthew is a director. They both produce and write within their film company, Fizz and Ginger. They've made the films Missing a Teens, Two Down, The Isle, um, Infinitum, Subject Unknown, which also stars Ian McKellen. Uh, and they have written the fantastic book on filmmaking, full to the brim with Fizz, Ginger and Fierce Determination, modern guide to independent filmmaking. Hopefully there'll be links to that in the show notes if I've got round to doing it. So how are you getting on at the moment? How are you creating opportunities for you as a filmmaker? It's one of the main reasons we started this podcast is to help you grow, to learn from this, but also to think about you. What has inspired you lately to go out there and keep working hard on your project? Maybe something has sparked something inside you that made you want to write something totally new. Maybe you got rid of the deadwood that was dragging you down. Maybe you rang an agent this week. Maybe you rang an actor. Maybe you move forward with your project and I really hope you did and if not make this week the week that you do that can't just sit on it nothing will happen the cavalry are not coming you are the cavalry you need to make things happen for your film so go do it this week make something happen send someone an email finish writing that scene Speak to that director, get that producer on board, get your IMs, your information memorandums and your decks in place to send to those investors you've been talking to. Make things happen. Make it happen for you. Do it. Oh, yes. And don't forget myself and Dom Lenoir are hosting a live filmmakers podcast live from the London Independent Film Festival. So, yes. So come and join us April the Sunday, the 16th of April from 2 till 6 p.m. We are going to have guests on the panel. It's kind of like a it'll be like a make your film event, um, but we're doing it. At the London Independent Film Festival. They put on a great show anyway there, so why not come down and join in the fun? The link to the tickets to that are in the show notes. Come along, come join us, say hi. Hopefully we'll see you there. Shout out uh, for some amazing people this week, including Mark Hammett, who joined our Patreon page. There are so many bonus episodes on there, so do come and join us. It's a couple of quid. Support this podcast, support me. Uh, doing this into the middle of the night um, but just because why not you get extra stuff from it as well also shout outs to Sam Ampar from Aliot's Accountants uh, Sam Hartshorn and to Serena Gardner and her Secret Garden Pictures because they have not only hit their crowdfunder target but they have now set a stretch goal They've already raised £10,000. Now they're looking for £3,000 more, which will really help them going towards their, quite frankly, remarkable-looking short film called Unraveling, which aims to raise awareness around multiple sclerosis and its effects on those who suffer from it. Uh, Click the link in the show notes and support them if you can. Next week, it looks like we might have Beck and Woods back on to talk about 65 movie. Or maybe we have Florian Zeller, the director of The Sun. So, stay tuned. Who knows? It's exciting either way. Right, let's get to it. This is myself, Matthew Butlerhart, Tori Butlerhart, talking with the rather frankly brilliant Richard Eyre, all about his journey as a filmmaker and his latest film, Alleluia. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Richard, so nice to Hello. meet you. Hello. How are you doing? Hi. You okay? Yeah, yeah. This is Charles Alderson, the main man. Hi. Hi, lovely to meet you. Thank you so much. Plenty of time chatting with us. It's really cool. Good. I realised it was uh, 10 years exactly uh, since Quartermain's terms. Well, <laughs> you look very well. 
<laughs> Thanks, Richard. I'll take yeah. Great. I'll take that. Thank you so much. I love the pause. I love yeah. the pause. Well, I'm not going to say that. Look okay. Like it shows. Okay. I never use headphones because I can't bear anything in my ears. How do you cope on set then? Do you, with the cans? Do you wear? Not cans? very well. You know, cans are sort of okay because they're over the top. Yeah. They're over the top. That's a healthy selection of books, CDs, games, oh, toys uh, behind you. Plays, <laughs> well, it's plays. plays. Um, we've been in this house for thirty-eight years, mm. and it's wow. top to bottom. It's just full of books, and we're moving end of this year. Oh gosh! Oh my gosh! You're gonna have to go through them all. There's nothing worse. I know. There's nothing worse. So, congratulations first, I suppose on. Hallelujah! You know it's you. Uh, really well done. It's it's excellent that uh, for one that you've got another film out. We love we love your work, um, obviously. But uh, yeah, I suppose it'd be interesting to to go back a little bit before we get there as well and talk about you, your start as a filmmaker. What was what was your childhood love of filmmaking? Was there a film that made you go, "Oh, that could be something that I could do"? Um, I never thought that. As a child, I grew up in the country in the middle of Dorset. Um, cinemas, I had to go by train to either Bridport or Dorchester. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was a limited choice of, of films. So I, I never saw an art film until I went to London by the time I was probably 18. Uh, when I went to university and then I saw I coincided with the French new wave the Italian new wave with uh, Bergman mm, with the, yeah. the best of of uh, American filmmaking of the, the time so this was early 60s so um, I just saw every film there was then mm. and I suppose if we're talking American films, I most liked, loved uh, On the Waterfront and mm-hmm. The Hustler. Mm. Those were two films which made a very deep impression, apart from the French New Wave. And and I was mad about Bergman's films, and I, I still mm. am. So that I'm, I'm a, a child of the great days of filmmaking. Do you feel that sort of influenced your your sort of uh, visual style, maybe? Um, or, or I, I think that I think to a fault, I assume that the audience takes things seriously. Mm. Bring it back to you a little bit more in terms of your work in film. Obviously, huge career in, in theatre as well. But I, I believe yeah. your first bit of tele or film that you directed was play for today is that right is that correct that's that right i was running bbc nottingham playhouse oh. in the 1970s oh it's beautiful theater that one Love it that was place. it was a lovely theater and i was doing a lot of plays by young writers and working with a lot of young actors mm-hmm. and the bbc asked me to produce play for today out of the blue so I was sort of plucked out of Nottingham and became a producer at the BBC, never having produced in television, never having directed in television. And 
somewhat cockily, I said, yes, absolutely, I'll, I'll do this job. But I also want to direct for television. And they said, well, all right. Um, <laughs> I'd love that. All right. <laughs> in fact, there was, sure. there was a prohibition against producing and directing. Mm. You couldn't at the time have a, mm. um, a double credit. So I, I, I did the job for three years. I employed a lot of very, very good directors and I watched what they did. And I started to learn about um, directing on film. But of course, mm. like all, all those things, you can only learn by doing it. Mm. And there's a wonderful adage. There's a poet called Douglas Dunn who has a poem that starts, only gardens can teach gardening. <laughs> and it's, it's the same about filmmaking until, um, until my first film, Mm. Was a, was called the Imitation Game. Yes, and yeah. it was much better than the other film, <laughs> the Imitation Game. <laughs> much better. But the, and the reason it's the same title is because it's actually the title is is from Alan Turing. It was Alan Turing's experiment, the Imitation Game, of how you um, could distinguish between human intelligence and artificial intelligence i suppose what's interesting there for us is what did you learn from i suppose diving in there with the play for today's and suddenly then okay and learning on the job and then going right i can now do this on a film um, level what what was it that worked for you as a director well the, i learned that the worst possible training for filmmaking is working in the theater <laughs> that you share um the the necessity to tell stories and also to to work with actors but actually the habit of seeing everything uh, as you do in the theater straight on and sort of selecting you know you as a director sort of hinting to the audience they should watch that rather and and in the theater invariably watching the speaker all that is terribly bad training for for filmmaking, where you're constantly you're in charge of the point of view, and the point of view is it's quite often not the speaker who's the most interesting. And um, the first film I did, the I set up a scene for and was standing with the the cameraman who walked off. The actors were sort of there uh, in front of us. Mm -hmm. He walked off and and appeared behind the actors, <laughs> and he gestured to me, and I went round to join him. And what he was saying is, look, it's much more interesting here mm -hmm. than than here. Mm -hmm. And that was a real insight. And then the whole business of how you move the camera and how you – told a story through moving a camera, how um, the the size of, of shot, the um, the the angle that you're shooting, all the the massive um, lexicon of of of, of um, means of of telling a story that you have with with film. The one thing you don't have with film 
is what theatre has, which is all theatre is metaphorical, that the audience know that they are watching mm. as if it's not the real thing. Mm. They know it and they make that poetic transposition to see that, you know, to, to you know, the, the suspension of disbelief. And in terms of a setting, you can put two chairs on a stage and, and represent a home. You can put eight chairs on a, on a stage and it becomes a, a society. Mm. Um, you can say we're in a row. You can just have a single lamppost on a, mm. uh, on the stage. In film, it's so relentlessly literal. <laughs> if you're in a road, you have to film the road. Mm. Um, and that has its own problems. And it can mean that it's sometimes very difficult to escape that feeling of literalism in, in, in film. So I'd say it took me quite a long time to learn how to move the camera and learn you know how to the the power of of editing and um the power of of the image of of letting the image talk mm. and and um and in television certainly in those days there was sort of over reliance on close ups mm. so you know, being able to just show how people are, are relating to it, which is what happens in in uh, in film. That um, Anessa film is made for television, um, and particularly American television, where it used to rely. I mean, there's a lot of now brilliant filmmaking in, in uh, American television, but it used to be sort of relentlessly cutty and yeah. and close-up to close-up, mm. you know, talking faces. Did, did, your, um, did you find that you had to sort of uh, change your approach of working with actors or, uh, from, from stage to, to film? Or... Um, I still like to rehearse for film because, and I've never, I've never bought that... Um, assumption that a lot of directors have that it's going to be spontaneous if the actors kind of don't know what's mm. happening and you know it's going to be more real and I feel this is slightly insulting because the actor's job is to appear spontaneous that that's, that's the job yes. you know it's it's wonderful when they can do it but in order to appear spontaneous in the theatre or film, I think you need as much information as possible. Mm. You don't need to be thinking about it when you're when the camera is actually turning over. What's important is you're alive the minute you know the, the the camera is on you. But I I always think it's more interesting when the actors informed and what they're doing uh, is acting spontaneously, mm -hmm. pretending to be spontaneous. And the best example I can think of in, in my films, are when, when I was doing Iris with Judy Dench, um, the editor 
was absolutely obsessed with a shot of Judy, which was a close-up of her in the advanced stages of Alzheimer's. And she did have um, uh, false... Contacts um, in? What do you call it? Contact lenses, slightly slightly foggy Mm. contact lenses, um, which quite changed her face. Mm. But it was a scene in which... um, her husband, played by Jim Broadbent, was asking about her writing, um, asking um, what she used to do, uh, whether she um, could remember what she... And Judy said, I wrote. And then there was, there was a silence, but... It was absolutely, um, it, it caught the um, heart uh, and the mind. But the editor found it very difficult to cut the film, cut the board off the film, because while we were setting up and I was saying, okay, we're, we're ready to go, and you could hear the um, first AD say, uh, quite down. Judy was finishing off a joke, uh, and she got to the punchline. I um, first AD said a turnover. She got to the punchline of the joke <laughs> and was just falling about with laughter at her own joke. <laughs> and it's and then I waited a moment and this and action and. Literally within four frames, you saw Judy Dench becoming Aris Murdoch in the latter stages of mm. Alzheimer's wow. disease. And it's quite extraordinary. It's it's sort of alchemical. Mm. Um and you know, she thinks well, we all think, although we don't sound like it, we all think at the speed of light, you know, the speed mm. of electricity. Um, but she could actually transform herself like that. Yeah. And that is that is the job of the actor, mm. pretend to be spontaneous. Yeah. Mm. I completely agree. I mean, it's sort of, there's so much work that goes into that, exactly the process that Judy was doing there, but you just have to just make, you can't, you can't show the joints, you can't show the work, but that is such hard work. I think that's why mm. people do think, oh, you know, they're just being spontaneous and just in the moment. It's like, but so much work has to go into recreating real vertical mm. life for mm. the camera it's just yeah it's 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 a, a huge amount of work that you're not allowed to see yeah mm. yeah but i think you have to the actors have to know what they're doing and how do you then guide them to that let's say i mean with judy tension i'm sure you're kind of like you know you're, you're okay but generally how do you guide your actors what is it like the rehearsal time what is it you're trying to get from them and how do you um, then put that onto the confidence camera? okay confidence and knowledge about i want them to ask the questions about their character mm. some people need to know a lot and some people just i mean like judy will ask a question um and you give an answer, and they say, uh, "Yep, got it. Okay." And she doesn't want any more. She doesn't want mm-hmm. an excess of information mm. because that's sort of robbing her of, of the process of 
being a detective and mm. in her mind just thinking just putting all the 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 pieces of the character together mm. and like yeah allowing the actor to do their own process and yeah the, the, mm. the actor has to you know in the end it on stage or on film it's not the director who is on show mm. the actor and the life in the actor's performance is the only thing that's going to make the film work it doesn't matter how exquisitely photographed it is uh and you know how famous the actors are if if the life isn't there on the screen the film is dead mm. what happens when you don't get those moments you know those the actors aren't where you need them to be and obviously you've gone through the rehearsal but yet they're on set sometimes it's not where you want or it could be a person who hasn't been in rehearsal much for you how do you find that performance from how do you pull something out in a short space of time or do you just cut round cut round it <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's sometimes brilliant what is invariably mm. true is that you go on and on trying to get something out of a scene um or out of a particular moment in a scene and then you're editing it and you say why why do we have that scene mm-hmm. we don't need that scene why did i think that scene was so important you know a connective link i thought you know without that scene you can't and that's the the wonderful thing of editing mm. is that you can't second guess it and editing sort of goes in a linear way that first of all you get an assembly that is sort of as you've shot it and it's kind of more or less as the script is and then gradually you start pairing it away and then you start reshaping and i can only compare it to um a sort of clay model of you know a, a a figure that you're sticking bits on and then you're taking bits and sometimes you think well actually the head is completely wrong and actually I'm going to take this whole model uh, and I'll put it together again and I'll turn the head round the other way and um it's it there is definitely a point in every film editing every film where it becomes three dimensional um and you're no longer um dealing with a sort of linear progression uh which is what you always are in the theater it's become a sort of three dimensional sculptural event um and that's very exciting when that happens and happens quite late and you realize I mean with with um hallelujah there are certain things that we realize quite late oh you don't need that hmm. you don't need that and once you've taken them out uh there's a sort of and and you've substantially changed uh the the not the narrative but you've you've changed the the means of of telling the story um and it's 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 absolutely liberating hmm. did you leave the uh sort of the director's uh editorial sort of mind right until the end or when you're on set are you already 
piecing things together going, oh maybe we can try this or what's your personal sort of process yeah i i, that, I think you are but you just don't know and almost invariably you shoot a film it all seems good you know rushes every day everyone seems very mm-hmm. pleased you think, yeah, yeah the actors are great you put it together in an assembly and it breaks your heart hmm. it just seems so slow and um leaden and all those things you thought oh we dance from that scene to that scene and it's just that it's all stuck together and then you start and generally assembly is probably about half an hour longer than the finished film um and during the process of take out that take out that you sometimes um take out the wrong organ <laughs> yes and then you're you're you know you've got the stick the body back together and think life support this isn't working why isn't it working because we've taken out mm. the spleen and we must was, put it out was that quite hard with Alleluia? because it's it's such a sort of an, an ensemble piece and obviously you know, it was adapted from Alan Bennett's uh, amazing play. W- was it quite hard? To, did you pull things out sometimes? You're like, oh, hang on, that's completely changed Judy Dench's. Yeah. Well, because oh. of this, the, all those character lines that, that you have yes. to sort of, you can't drop one. Otherwise, no. sort of, you know, they're swimming in that's, no man's land. So it's sort right. of, yeah, yeah, keeping that piece together. How yeah. was that process? Well, you don't know until, you don't know what is essential until you put it all together. Even when... Let's say with Alleluia, I had this um, probably two-hour assembly, and then you take out 20 minutes of that, show it to the producers, and everyone is sort of excited. And then you, it, you realise job's not done at all. Mm. And, you know, the next day everyone will give their notes, do we need this, do we need That seems very slow. That, And it... It, it's a succession of um, really false hopes um, until you get to that point where actually the film seems like the thing itself mm-hmm. and you show it to f- try and find a generous-minded mm-hmm. um, as somebody who is, is not party pre and see what they have to say. Mm-hmm. And then you find sometimes uh, you make discoveries like you've got, you haven't got an end. Mm. You talked there about the editing process and how things can change within that side. Did you, do you find that often with your films that you're kind of rewriting, re-editing in the edit stage and you took things apart that, like you mentioned there, you're constantly taking stuff out, but has that happened throughout your, all your films? Yeah, probably should have happened more. Really? In, in what way? It's taken me a long time to see what a creative process it is, how it's, as I, I described it, as three-dimensional. And I think for a long time I saw it as a sort of linear yeah. thing. Mm. And that was also theatre training. Mm. Mm. The, the editing in the theatre is is just mm. snipping out. You don't go, oh, yeah. let's yeah. 
end at the beginning and beginning at the end yeah you don't uh, but you know film. you don't whereas it's quite common with a, with a film that you actually do pick up the end of the film and put it at the beginning and it's sort of almost something. really where the story and the performances are, are, are created yeah, that's what i was yeah. about to say it's finding that balance isn't it between sort of story is key and and making yeah. sure that that is very present and yeah. prevalent. But then actually what's beautiful about film and the craft and the art of film is that you can get to the beating heart of those characters and that's actually what you're going to engage in. It's yeah. it's their journey that you're on. And perhaps sometimes, you know, before the story itself, but perhaps sometimes yeah. come secondary. Sure. There's also, um, I mean, I've mostly done low budget films so i haven't had um only on one occasion the privilege of being able to reshoot stuff or um add stuff mm. so with notes on a scandal there was one scene that we reshot uh after the film had been cut together and we changed the ending all right. Quite radically. Um, the ending as it was, and as in the in Patrick Marber's I, script, mm. it ended with um Kate's character throwing the book, the um, you know, the the journal mm -hmm. into the sea at Beachy Head mm -hmm. and for moment thought she was going to throw herself for a number of reasons it didn't really work and then uh the ending as it is is um judy's character on hampstead heath meeting a young woman and you see you know the cycle beginning mm. again which mm. in some ways is a sort of hollywood ending you know the, <laughs> But it's quite droll, but and it's no coincidence that the film was made by 20th Century Fox. Mm. Um, because I think had it been a British producer, mm. it probably would have ended yeah. as, as the script. As was, yeah. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that that 
process of adaptation from play to screen, because obviously Alleluia was also a play, um, Alan Bennett. Um, and just sort of how much were you involved in, in sort of both processes? So Notes of a Scandal and then... I had uh, put on Patrick's plays at the National Theatre, mm-hmm. so I knew Patrick very well. Um, so I was involved in the shaping of that script. Mm-hmm. And um, also with Alleluia, that what Heidi Thomas did was take a rather um, disordered play that Alan had written um, that... Like a lot of Alan's work, it was, there's a bit here, there's a bit here, there's a bit here. And he hands it over to the director. I mean, he did this. I made a film um, called The Insurance Man uh, about Kafka with um, a young Daniel Day-Lewis. And originally, the script, Alan literally pushed it through my letterbox (laughs) with a note saying, See if you can make anything of this. Amazing. <laughs> and it was just sort of brilliant scenes, um, but without a sort of coherent narrative. And so it was my job to to sort of knit it together. Mm. And that was the same with the play of Alleluia. And Nick Heitner had the notion of of this choir, which appeared like a sort of chorus um every now and then Mm. and pushed the story forward and it ended with the finale was um the choir singing um alleluia right and for the film heidi actually concocted a storyline that a thread that went that bound together so she she just took the best of bennett and um, put them around a storyline mm-hmm. which had uh, a, a clear and, and um, accessible narrative. A little less surreal, as it were. Uh, absolutely. Mm. It, it was absolutely, it, it sits in the world of, of reality. Yeah. But it's still those little, those sort of Bennett, but Bennettonian, that's not a word, uh, little slices yeah. of life, uh, yeah. those, which is beautiful. Well, in the dry humour, <coughs> those, yeah. you know, that are so the classic him. Unmistakable. Bennett jokes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, uh, David Bradley uh, in oh, this as well. Oh, he's just beautiful. He to watch. really is. He is. What a fantastic he's actor. He's just brilliant, mm. brilliant. Yeah. And um, he breaks my heart mm. to see dances with, mm. yeah, Jennifer. with Jennifer. I was just about to say that. Just so beautiful. It really um, is. Is, yeah. is he the sort of um, actor you can kind of wind up and just. He does his thing, or do you, does he? What's his? What's his sort of? Or what's your process with 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 him? It just he does it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we talk about it. Uh, we read it through. There was not really any me pushing David. I mean, I'd worked with David several times, and I knew David um, and and uh, and Russell. So, it wasn't as if I was steering them in a different direction just we were exchanging ideas so that we were absolutely certain we were all on the on the um same page when we came to shoot it the next day because it's very hard particularly if you're you're 
out of doors and you're dependent on, as it happened, it was a beautiful autumn day. But if you're dependent on weather and you're and the scene isn't and you haven't prepared the scene and the scene is going off in a mm. different direction, you have to pull it back. Mm. That's really, really hard. And that's one of the reasons I like to prepare. I like to know what the actors have in mind yeah. and they like to know what I have in mind. Yeah. And so it's worked the same way with your crew as well, you know, with your DPs, yeah. with the production designers. Absolutely. Talk us through that process as well. Generally, the, the DP is often there when I'm rehearsing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I've worked with, with Ben several times. Mm-hmm. Um he did the King Lear I did with yes. um, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's he likes to be at rehearsals. And it's it's great because he will rehearsals, sort of see things that I don't see. And also the actors will get to know him. So, you know, they're, they're familiar with somebody who is, mm. is photographing them. Mm. And it's all part of... I think the important thing of making the actors feel confident, mm, building that trust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you do um, like shortlist storyboards? Talk us through your actual, or or is it like you, you said there? You're free on the day as well. If it's a really complicated scene, so maybe the big scene in the hall at the end with the you know the assembly when she's getting her yeah. award yeah. i would sort of do a, a, a i would talk it through with ben beforehand probably the day before mm. but i wouldn't issue a formal shot list and hand it to the first ad mm. i'd just say we're going to start with and i think that day we had two cameras throughout okay uh, um, and one camera was more or less permanently on Steadicam, and that day we had Steadicam. We had a a mini jib, um, and it's just if you're working with two cameras, and Ben is particularly good at this, that he will light for both cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have, you know, you've got twice as much material and sometimes you're saying you know can you generally you'd have two angles for wide shot two angles for for all the sizes of Mm. of shot and then you'd start you know picking off individual details Mm. um but i would only storyboard if it's an action sequence so there's nothing in hallelujah that i had to storyboard mm. right um so because you'd worked with each other before as well you, you, especially yeah that shorthand uh, and, he, he knows your style you know sort of maybe he how he would approach things um, so, yeah. so you know i've worked enough with ben for ben ben and i to you know if ben has a good idea i'll generally follow Ben or if I have he he'll so between the two of us I think we generally come up with some 
better idea. Mm. <laughs> um, Interestingly, Ben Smith, the DOP there, because uh, I did work with him on the Damned United because he shot that uh, background. Oh, in yes. Absolutely, but interestingly, yeah. he used to own a Cherokee Jeep. Um, and I remember seeing it on the set of the Damned United, not thinking everything. I have a quick conversation with him. About five years later, I bought a Cherokee Jeep. And I was only looking through the names of the previous owners, and it was the exact same Jeep. Oh, um, no. <laughs> Isn't that weird? I've only just sold it now. Oh, Isn't that no, weird? I haven't seen him yeah. since to talk to him about that whole Jeep and what, he did, Jeep. what he did wrong with it. But anyway, no, but that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> random little uh, thoughts oh, there oh. With, with, with Ben. Yeah. He's a wonderful cinematographer. It must be great, those collaborations you have with those people. How yeah. how do you keep sane on set then? Because obviously things can go wrong. Things can be hectic and get het up um, and problems. How do you deal with it? I I generally am with people I've worked with before. I don't sort of panic. The only time I would get very, very uneasy is it, it when if you're dependent on light, you know, when you're mm. when you're shooting dusk mm. dusk for dusk mm. or, or dawn for dawn uh and you just have to rehearse everything before that state of light mm. and if you don't or if something happens that uh, then i i get ratty <laughs> <laughs> ratty but it sort of would be my fault mostly my fault if because you know these things, everything has to be planned um, in order to allow for spontaneity. I mean, this people are so naive about filmmaking. <laughs> so true. And people who write about it, you think I know. you couldn't say that if you knew how films were actually made. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and critics assigning mm-hmm. responsibility. You know, the, this whole thing of of directors being you know the auteurs it's just such nonsense it really is and there are very few genuine auteurs you know there's Godard and there's um Truffaut was and and Bergman Mm. was Rossellini but Mm. they're very very few people Michael Hanker Mm. is of course but most directors are taking a script, working with the writer, working with, they have producers, and if there's amount of money involved, there are a lot of people mm-hmm. saying, I think it should be this, I think it should be that. So, you know, the vision of the director is, I mean, yes, the director has to have uh, a view, but it's a view shared with, you know, the, the principal, the actors, the photographer. Uh, well, sound and, and as you said, editor. the money people have so they have and, such and the a, money. If they people. say well, we don't like this end. We want to change it, as they've done yeah. to us. And, and, and you go, well, there's very little. I, I can fight for it, but mm. there's very little. Yeah, I can you do can for it. you can fight for it, but in the end, there's preposterous amount of money. Yeah, um, it's someone else's state. money. <laughs> <laughs> somebody else's money and i know people say oh it's a very small budget film and you say well how much oh eight million i think well if you're in the theater eight million mm-hmm. i mean that's what it costs to put on a big musical mm-hmm. um 
and you know with the hope that it's going to run for years and years yeah. mm-hmm. it's, it's a huge so, amount of money even a million pound film a, you go oh it's a tight it's a no budget like yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. million pounds it's of someone else's money yeah no, it's a lot of someone's money <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so a, a film like hallelujah then how how would it come to you were you involved with that when you saw it with alan were you saying uh, oh this could make a film it, or was it uh, damien no, jones and kevin loader um, producers pathé cameron mccracken mm. at pathé uh had the idea of making a film from the play he had the idea of recruiting heidi thomas and he asked nick and it was probably Nick's contract of the play that he had first refusal if there was a film. And Nick said, I, I, Nick Heitner, I, yeah, okay. you should ask Richard. So that, oh, that's wow. how it came to me. Um, but the way that Aris came to me was that John Kelly, a producer who ran Columbia mm-hmm. Pictures, had bought the rights to John Bailey's book about Aris Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And asked Mike Nichols to direct it, and they got Judy involved. This was with no script at all. And then Mike decided that he didn't want to do it and said to John Kelly, no, the person you should get to do this is Richard Eyre. Wow. And he knows a lot about Alzheimer's because I'd written about it. I'd written, My mother had Alzheimer's. Mm. So John Kelly approached me. And I wrote the script with uh, Charles Wood. I recruited Charles Wood and I wrote the script together, mm. John Kelly. Um, he then said, oh, well, Columbia won't do this, but um, Sony will do this. They do small films. Uh, he gave it to Sony. Sony said, this isn't the sort of thing we do. <laughs> and John very generously said, look, I'm giving it to I'm giving it back to you. It's yours. Uh-huh. And he didn't make me pay. Mm. Um and I, I mean it hadn't been an astronomical fee, yes. but mm. he didn't make me pay. So it was that was how I got um Iris. Mm. And then I asked Scott Rudin to be involved and and my friend Robert Fox. Mm-hmm. And I'd worked with Scott quite a lot. Um, who is everything you've heard? <laughs> and, uh, but that's how the film got made, so that's, and we made it for five million pounds, mm-hmm. and it went on to make uh, a lot uh, of money. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, apparently, it did, but I never saw it. No, I've never no. seen. You're only really... the filmmaker, though. So you exactly. Know, you won't get the money. Yeah. Yeah. You won't get the money. Yeah. Why would you? I've never seen any. You you have these preposterously long negotiations about back end. Mm-hmm. I've never seen any of it. No. But if I say that Iris was distributed by Harvey Weinstein, then you realise uh, why, because mm. nobody ever got any... When Anthony Minghella died, mm. he was still hoping to get money from Weinstein for the... English patient. English patient. Oh. It's it's amazing, isn't it? And it's almost it's, it's almost impossible to 
avoid. We do our best to try and put in corridors or to put in windows yeah. to get make sure some money funnels back in. But it's amazing that it still happens at every level. As it's just as filmmakers, yeah. we have to accept this might be part of it and try and get more up front or try and get yeah. something else or a job straight after right. or a three picture deal, whatever. It's it's very mm-hmm. tricky. Any advice on dealing with studios like that? Anything you've learned that would help our filmmakers? Um, none at all. I mean, you know as much as as I do, uh, and it just there's there's no blackmail except that overcasting at some point in several films. I've said, well, I don't think I could do it with that person, mm. and the they pulled my bluff. And I've stuck to my guns. You've got to be prepared. If you say, I can't do it with that person, you've got to mean it. Hmm. So, uh, and then they come, so, all right, well, we'll do it your way. Hmm. Has that ever backfired? Um, <laughs> um, no, I had, I did a film with called Stage Beauty. Oh, yeah. mm, beautiful film. With um, Claire Danes and um, Billy mm. Cruder. And the money was saying, you've got to have um, Na- uh, what's Naomi, what, Naomi Watts. Watts. Okay, yeah. yeah. And I said, but she's not right. This Claire is much younger and has this fantastic energy and there's a luminosity about her mm. whereas there's something slightly down about Naomi um then there was a moment that um uh oh god what's her name um Australian actress Kate Blanchett Nicole Kidman um Nicole. There we go. I was going to go Kylie <laughs> yeah, Minogue. She, she was interested in that. I thought, oh, oh, great, great. Yeah, she'd be great. And I had a meeting in New York with her. I had a drink with her. Um, and during the meeting, she said, actually, I can't do the film. I'm not free. I just wanted to meet you and say hello. <laughs> um, that's, that's nice. Oh, so that works. Hello. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Notice anyway, um, uh So Claire... Claire did it, and this was pre-Homeland, mm. and um, I love Claire. Oh, yeah. she's fantastic. She was brilliant in that as well. Yeah. 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 At the premiere, luckily. Yeah. Oh. She was lovely. Very lovely. nice. Got the chat to her. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Yeah, right. Lovely. Very. And Billy as well. <laughs> a little bit starstruck. Kind of. oh, hello. <laughs> I was much younger. Yes, yes, of course, of course. So, um, well, look, this has been so much know, fun. This has been really fabulous to talk to you. Um, uh, I, I was going to go into some final bits of advice, unless you two have got anything else burning on your minds. You go, oh, advice. I know, God. it's the usual. Well, advice, persistence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, persistence. You just got to go on and on and on. Um, and the script. I mean, what do you have to persuade somebody to part with a great deal of money? Well, it's the script. And I think there's so little um, credit given to writers mm. in the film. Mm. 
it's always the director, the self-aggrandizement of the director. And the writer, it's the writer who comes before the director. Mm -hmm. And it's the writer that convinces anyone. I mean, you can say, yes, but it's Steven Spielberg. But he would be the first one to say, yes, but Mm -hmm. the script isn't Mm -hmm. right. And this is what some terrible films are made, and they say, we're going to fix the script as we go along. And they... (laughs) No, because you can't. When you're in the middle of it all, it's almost impossible to see outside of the woods you're in. So in spite of the fact that um, if you put the finished film against the script, there's a massive difference... Um, between you know from the original the blueprint Mm. but you've got to believe the blueprint you've got to go into a film uh, you've got to go raising money for a film with a script that is um, strong and accessible and if you don't then what is what is there to go on it's not you know the reputation of of a director is something but You've got to have the script, and then you've got to have an actor. And this is where it, it's sometimes terribly difficult because they'll say, but these are the only bankable names. Mm. And you think, but Hugo Ant's really mm. not right. Mm. This. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, As yes. wonderful as Hugh is in yeah. everything. But He's not the Sister Gilbert. He's not Sister Gilbert, no. It changes so quickly because when I did King Lear about four years ago, four or five years ago, I cast this woman who'd been in one film, Florence Pugh, Mm. as Cordelia. She was Mm. breathtakingly good. Now, you know, a few years, Florence is, Mm -hmm. you know, you couldn't get Mm -hmm. Florence Mm -hmm. for a movie. And if I, you know, if this has been a movie movie, and I'd been saying Florence too. They would have said, mm-hmm. "No, you've got to have whoever was, you know, the Florence Pugh of of the time." So it's frustrating, but you've just got to persevere and not let it get you down. <laughs> Amazing! Look, there you go. You can go out there and make your film, make your script the best it can be, uh, and then go out there and make it. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well. It's your duty to send the elevator back back down. down. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Richard, uh, thank you so much for your time. You've been amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been been such a pleasure. And congratulations on the film. Yes, thank you very much. And 17th of March, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. We will see you next Tuesday when it's either Beckham Woods talking about their movie 65 or it's Florian Zeller talking about The Sun. Or it could be Dexter Fletcher, to be honest. Or it could be the editor of John Wick, Chapter 4. <gasps> How exciting. Take care, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Bye.